0: Alright, let's get started. Settle in, settle in. Well, hey, happy Tuesday. Welcome back. Uh, We are back in Revelation. Last week we talked about martyrs, people who were um, killed for the faith. We talked about Polycarp and then our brothers and sisters around the world. Who are suffering for the gospel? So I want to do this. Let's kind of just review and sort of get our bearings, um, just figure out where we're at in Revelation. Then we'll kind of look ahead, and then we'll get started. So Revelation is a book about warning and hope. Um, I don't have all of our um, review candy. Is it in there? It's by Heather. Heather, do you want to be the? You can you can throw that out to people. Okay. You're fine. All right. Uh, so Revelation is a book about warning and hope. Someone flesh that out a little bit. Warning about what? Warning <laughs> about what? Both the warning and the hope, are that Christ is coming soon. So that would yeah. judgment of the unrighteous, and then saved or suffering will suffer the land. that will enter God's rest. Yeah. So it's a warning for. Yeah for Christians who are lax, for Christians who are giving in to temptations for idolatry, Christians who are just looking like the world and not standing out and reflecting Christ. And then it's a message of hope, um, like y'all said, for Christians who are suffering. Whether you're suffering because of persecution, whether you're suffering because we just live in a broken world, Revelation offers hope that God's gonna make all things new. So that's kind of just what Revelation's about. We talked about the genre, that it's kind of a mixed bag of genres. It has some letters or some messages to the seven churches. It has some prophecy. And then it has apocalypse. Apocalypse is a genre, that's your word. (laughs) Um, Apocalypse is similar to prophecy, but it's just like super vivid, big, wild images. Uh, It's just trying to get your attention. And remember we said part of that means, you know, we want to do our best to understand the big picture. What is this really saying? We don't have to figure out all the teeny tiny details. I don't think anybody ever will. But we're supposed to view Revelation through our imaginations. We're supposed to feel something when we read it. It's like when you read poetry, right? Like you want to try to figure out what the poem's about, but part of poetry is just appreciating the beauty or the sadness or the whatever emotions that piece of literature is supposed to evoke. So, um,. That's the genre. We got into chapter 1 a few weeks ago, and John introduces himself. He says, "Handwriting hey, writing to the seven churches. And then he paints this just beautiful picture of the resurrected Christ as the one who is our hope, the one that um, just draws our hearts to him, the one who is worth it um, to give everything for. And so that kind of sets the tone of the book, that Jesus is worth it. Chapters 2 and 3 address the seven churches in Asia Minor, and that's where those messages of warning and hope really come out. There's Christians back then who were just really compromising, who were giving into idolatry and sexual immorality, and so John writes and says, hey, like, this is a warning, like, do not give into this stuff. And then he's also offering hope to Christians who are suffering under um, oppression. Chapters 4 and 5 were this beautiful scene of heavenly worship, so it starts with, hey, here's these churches down here, here's what's going on in the throne room of heaven. It's just a big old worship party. We have people um, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You have these angels, you have the 24 elders. Just everybody is bowing down to God and to the lamb who shares the throne with God. And then there's something that happens in chapter five that sets the stage for what we're about to talk about. Um, do you guys remember John starts crying? (laughs) Why is John upset in chapter five? They're trying to find somebody who's worthy to do what? Open Sinema the scroll, weapon. yeah, cinema. open the scroll to break the seals, right, um, and so, so we're in chapters six and seven, we're talking about the seven seals, or at least we'll cover the first six of seven seals, these are not like the aquatic cute little animals, no, these are wax seals that cover up a scroll, and so like a king would send a message, and then you would have to have the authority to open those seals, to kind of break it open and see what's inside, And so only Jesus is able to open the scroll. Only Jesus is worthy. And the contents of that scroll are essentially the final chapter of the world. (laughs) The contents of the scroll are what God is going to do to save sinners, to make all things new, to rescue his people, and to judge evil. And something that's important to know is this final chapter has already started. right? If you read the New Testament, if you read um, just how it's portrayed in Scripture, The death and resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of the end. That's the beginning of the final chapter. And so it's a long chapter. It's gone on for 2,000 years. But we are living into this story. So you and I are part of the grand story from Genesis to the end of Revelation. And we're living into that final chapter um, where God is at work to judge evil, to rescue his people, and to make all things new. Um, So that'll be important to think about as we go through all this. This week and then the next couple of weeks, we're covering um, just a whole bunch of stuff about God's wrath and judgment. So it's going to be a great time. Uh, party. Whoa. Wow, that was like, hmm. okay. uh, <laughs> um, But I say that, and I say, I want you all to be encouraged. We're going to talk about wrath. We're going to talk about judgment. But if you belong to Jesus, those are part of the good news. And it's tempting in our culture to shy away from some of these kind of heavy topics, but number one, this is part of how God is going to overthrow evil, is through his wrath and through judgment, through his holiness. And number two, it's just kind of the other side of the coin. We've looked at the beauty of Christ, and now we're looking at um, Christ's judgment. (laughs) Um, and, And so this is just another thing that motivates us to walk in godliness. It's not meant to scare us, um, but it's meant to, to compel us to live faithfully, knowing that we are on um, the right side of history. We're on the side of the Lamb who is slain. So there's seven seals, and then the seventh seal opens up. Um, and when that seal opens, it introduces the seven trumpets. And then when the seventh trumpet op- or blasts, it introduces the seven bulls. Um, and then within all of that, there's all these different interludes. It's like a really, really literarily complex unit. Um, And that's part of the beauty of Revelation. It makes my job a little bit harder trying to explain it all, but um, I think we'll be okay. So just know it's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, some interludes scattered around. Um, We'll cover the first six seals because the seventh seal is just the introduction to the seven trumpets, okay? So, there is a few ways that people have interpreted the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, and that makes it extra confusing. Like I said, remember our two goals are, number one, we're going to try to get the big picture. What is God doing in the world to save sinners and make all things new? And number two, what's the imaginative, emotional effect of what is this supposed to do to our hearts as we read these truths? You're going to come away with this with probably more questions than answers, and that's okay. In fact, I think it's good if you read scripture and say, I don't understand everything. I understand what I need to know. (laughs) That's the goal. The Holy Spirit's working in my heart, but I have some questions. That's good, because that makes you walk away and still think about scripture. It makes you walk away and go, hmm, I need to kind of just sit on this and ponder it for a little bit. So if you're reading Revelation, if you're reading any book of the Bible, and you say, man, I don't fully get this, that's okay, that's kind of a gift. It lets you just sit and marinate in it for a little bit. Okay, so some people think that all of these events already happened way back, um, and they're pointing to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. I think there's still just clearly stuff that's yet to be done. So I don't think that's the best approach. There's some people that think all of this is only in the future. Um, And there clearly are future things. But part of the tricky stuff is you say, okay, well, what about the people that John was writing to? He's writing to the seven churches, right? So if it's only about the future, then what hope does that give them? Um, So I take kind of a mixed approach and there's a lot of good people who do. I think this is, partly true about just our experience today. It's partly true um, about the future. And so when you think about history, we tend to think it just goes in like a line and it progresses, right? But the, the image that these ancient writers thought, and I think this is probably a good way to think about history, is it kind of goes in cycles, right? And so it says, hey, whenever wicked empires take over, they do it through violence. And so there's patterns, there's paradigms. And so it just kind of traces those patterns. It just traces the dynamics of sinful human power and sinful human rule. And then it leads us to the end of the culmination of human history. And there's going to be some major events before Christ comes. I think those are still in the future. Um, I think Jesus' return is obviously still in the future. So I think it's a mix of stuff that has happened and is happening and will happen. I think that's the best approach to take. So I'm going to read through. I'm going to kind of stop just every now and then and explain stuff. If you have questions, you can send them through that QR code. I think the link is also in Slack, and I'll try to answer those at the end if I remember. So, Revelation chapter 6. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and then a horse came out, the fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand, and then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for, for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. Then the lamb opened the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given a power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth." (laughs) Nice. So what do we do with that? I don't know. Have you guys heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? We all heard that uh, phrase before. Yes, yeah, so that's what this is, and so these are the first four seals. They start, op- the, you know, the Lamb, which is Jesus, starts opening these seals, and again, just use your imagination. Like these thundering horses start coming by, and the first one is a white horse, and the rider has a crown and a bow. Later in Revelation, Jesus rides a white horse. Some people think that this rider is Jesus. Other people don't think that's the case. I'm in that second camp for a couple reasons. Um, Number one, that rider responds to the living creature that tells him to come, and Jesus doesn't really have to answer to those living creatures. I think the command would be the other way around, that if it's Jesus, Jesus should be commanding the living creature what to do. But then secondly, the lamb is already in the image, and he's opening the scroll. And so it would make sense for Jesus to be doing two things at once, to be opening the seal and then also riding on the horse. What's also interesting is back then, so in 80 or 90 AD, when John is writing this, they were shortly on the heels of a big military defeat from the Parthians. So the Romans were just, not wiped out, but a big military loss for the Romans from the Parthians. And the Parthians were known for riding white horses and for their archers. And so this horse has a bow, it's in, or the rider of this horse has a bow in his hand. And so it's probably giving images to John's readers of this really horrific uh, defeat to the Parthians. So I think, and I'm following some other people on this, that this first rider just represents a military conquest. Remember, we've been talking about how Jesus conquers in a way that's different than all the other nations of the world conquer. Jesus conquers by laying down his life for the people he loves, whereas the Romans and the Greeks and the Babylonians and everybody before and after them conquer through violence. And so this is just a picture of how human empires work, how they conquer through violence. The second rider, the second horseman, um, is an image of just straight up violence. And specifically, it's violence within a civilization. And so the first horse is violence from outside, from conquering empires. The second horse is violence from within the community of social unrest, people just um, kind of losing it and harming each other. The third horse kind of follows on the heels of those, it's famine. And the whole saying about, you know, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages. The whole idea behind that is just the prices are really, really inflated. Like you have to work a whole day just to pay for one meal. Um, And so people can't afford anything. That's usually a pretty common response to war and to social unrest is that stuff gets expensive. And it's hard just to afford the basic necessities of life. But then it's interesting that he says, do not harm the oil or the wine. Well, what were those things? Were those necessities? Not so much. Those were luxuries. And so it's depicting a famine where people can't get the stuff that they need, but they still have the stuff that they don't really need. (laughs) They have the luxuries, but those are kind of useless in the face of a devastating famine. And then the last horse is, or the last rider, is riding on a pale horse. That word probably means, like, yellowish green. If you've ever, like, left broccoli in the crisper drawer for too long and then you find it. Like, that's the color of this horse. Uh, The Greek word literally means old broccoli not actually <laughs> that <would be> funny. <laughs> but it means like yellowish green like the color of a corpse it's kind of a horrifying image horses do not naturally come in corpse color so this is just kind of the natural progression of violent conquest, social unrest famine and then death and hades hades is not hell hades was just the realm of the dead it's just another image for death and so it's just saying here's here's the whole point of these seven horsemen it's saying if humans want to be in charge, this is what happens. If humans want to rule by the sinful, conquesting <laughs> ways that humans like to take over, it's going to result in bloodshed and famine and ultimately death. Right? These ways are opposed to God's way of ruling the world, and this is why. It's not what's best. Only what Jesus says is best is the optimal way of a flourishing society. So this happens, and then there's sort of a natural question, right? If you're a Christian and you're suffering under one of these violent pagan regimes, you're sitting there saying, okay, God, what about me? You're allowing wickedness to kind of run its course. You're allowing evil to to just implode and judge itself, which, okay, that's fine. But what about us? What about the faithful believers who are um, just steadfastly sitting within pagan oppression and being killed? So that's the fifth seal. That's uh, verse 9. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little while longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and uh, every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the princes and the generals, the rich and the mighty and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? So the first four seals are just kind of the general cycles of human history of wickedness and oppression and pagan rule. And then these martyrs, people who've been killed, are their souls are beneath the altar. It's probably an image from the Old Testament where there was an altar in the temple and you would sacrifice an animal and the animal's blood would drain below the altar. That's what happened below the altar. And so these martyrs, these witnesses, are pictured as people who are so faithful that their lives have been poured out like a sacrifice. And they're crying out to God, saying, God, would you avenge our death? And it's tempting to read this and think, oh, these people are selfish. They just want revenge, right? Um, They want vengeance, but not for their own good. They are looking at God and saying, God, will you defend your honor? Because back then, if you're a king and you send your servants out to do something and somebody goes and kills your servants... If you just sit back and go, ah, that's cool. You can kill my servants. That makes you look bad as a king. It makes it look like you don't care about your people. And so this is ultimately not a cry for revenge. It's a cry for God to defend his glory. And they're saying, God, like, how long until you judge this wickedness and make everything right? They're wearing white robes, which is an image of purity and righteousness. Um, And they're told to wait a little while longer. The Lord um, is patient and... um, He says, just be patient. There's more people who have to testify to the greatness of the gospel. They're gonna suffer, they're gonna die, but I will avenge their deaths and honor my glory. That's what God, that's God's response. The sixth seal is I think something in the future. (laughs) This hasn't happened yet. The terminology, the the language is probably pretty figurative. So things like stars falling from the sky um, was often used in the ancient world to describe this massive social upheaval. I don't think it literally means that stars are going to come crashing down to Earth because we would all be dead instantly if a star fell down and hit the Earth. It would throw off gravity. It would throw off everything. So if people are still able to talk and tell mountains to cover them, then something figurative is probably happening here. But whatever it is, we don't know the exact specifics, but they are the, you know, the inhabitants of the Earth, which is not everybody. Revelation uses that phrase, inhabitants of the Earth, to talk about non-believers. So it's saying non believers, oppressors, people who are um, harsh to Christians, people who martyr Christians, um, they are going to be judged by God's full wrath. And it's going to be so painful that they ask the mountains to fall down on them and cover them from God's wrath. Um, And notice it's the wrath of God, so that's the one who sits on the throne, and it's the wrath of the Lamb. It's not that Jesus is just this passive little nice guy who is meek and mild and God the Father is the mean one. Notice that. God and Jesus both act together to judge wickedness. So chapter six ends with a question. These are the the inhabitants of the earth, these are the sinful people, they're saying, great is the day of their wrath, who can withstand it? Who can stand against it? Or who can can, um, survive this intense wrath of the lamb? Chapter seven is an interlude. (laughs) Like the story just gets super crazy and then it's like, okay, pause, we're gonna take an intermission. But chapter 7 actually answers their question. Chapter 7 is the answer to who can withstand God's wrath. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but chapter 7 basically presents the people of God in two sort of panels, two images. The first one is 144,000, and it describes them as people from every tribe of Israel. This is one that I think is a figurative number. 144,000 is a nice, neat number. It's 12 times 12 times 1,000, I think. I'm a theologian, I'm not a math teacher, yes. but I think that checks out. I'm <laughs> not a math teacher either, but that is Hey, Okay, cool. That. Um, so what is the significance of that number? Well, number 1,000 is just lots and lots and lots, so tons of those people. 12 times 12, I think, is the 12 tribes of Israel times the 12 apostles. This is all the people of God from all time, from beginning to end of history, the people of Israel who um, had faith in the Lord and us, Gentiles, who are not Israelites, who are grafted into Israel um, and belong to to the Lord. It's uh, kind of hard to tell, but there are some people who think that this, you know, from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000, from the tribe of Gad, 12,000, this is referencing the book of Numbers. And if you've ever tried to read through the Bible and you get to Numbers and it's just lots of, well, numbers... (laughs) You're like, oh, why am I reading this? Well, Numbers is giving you military formations. It's saying, hey, you're going to march through the desert, and this is your military. This is how you stand as a military. This is your formation. It might be the case that Revelation is giving a military formation for the people of God, um, not in physical battle, but for spiritual battle. Um, it, and so these are people who are marked with a seal. They're marked with the seal of God on their foreheads. What does that sound like in Revelation? that ring a bell to anyone who's read Revelation? What does that sound like? Mark like of the beast. Yeah, it kind of sounds like the mark of the beast. This is not the mark of the beast, but it's going to contrast with people who receive the mark of the beast. So these are God's people. These are the faithful ones. They receive a, a seal on their forehead. It's also a reference to Ezekiel 9, I think. Back in Ezekiel, um, the people of Judah are being super wicked. They are disobeying the Lord, and so God says, y'all are going to receive judgment. Um, and so... Basically, God sends a messenger and he puts a mark on people's foreheads if and only if they have repented. So he puts a mark on foreheads of people who weep and mourn over their sin, who repent over their wickedness. Um, They get marks on their foreheads. Nobody else does. And the people who have marks on their foreheads are protected. They're preserved um, when judgment comes to Jerusalem. Uh, Marks on your foreheads back then were also a sign of ownership. And so masters would put marks on their slaves' foreheads to indicate, hey, this guy belongs to me. And so it's saying these people belong to God. Um, We answer to the living God and the living God alone. And we fall under the protection of the living God when judgment comes. And then the second half of chapter 7, John turns and he sees this just incredible multitude that no one can count from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. Um, all these people standing before the throne, we see just another scene of heavenly worship. Um, I think these are both describing the same people. It's the people of God uh, described as people in warfare, people who are protected, preserved, and belong to Jesus. And then the flip side is just this incredible multitude um, approaching God in worship. There's something interesting uh, if you look at verse 13. So John sees this incredible multitude, and, and then John says... One of the elders asked me, these are white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? And I answered, sir, you know. (laughs) So John's like, I don't know, but you know, tell me. And uh, the elder says this, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So what is the great tribulation? (laughs) Does anybody know? Yeah? The last week in Daniel... Yeah, so it's a reference. What think. Yeah, so it's a reference to Daniel for sure, as in everything in Revelation. There's some discussion. There's some debate about it, but it's um, number one. It's going to be a time when things just get really bad for Christians. A time of just intense persecution. A time of suffering. All of our tribulations are, in a sense, a type of that great tribulation. Um, but the point is, the people standing before the throne are those who have been faithful to the Lord. Um, it's people who haven't earned their way to heaven. Notice that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so everyone in heaven worshiping the Lord, finding um, fellowship in God's presence are there because they've responded in faith to Christ's gift on the cross. Um, And that's why they're there. So this gives us a glimpse just of all the suffering that the world brings through human wickedness, through violence. Um, God doesn't preserve us from that. We still suffer. We still face pain. Um, Christians back then and today still die for the faith. We still get sick. So God doesn't promise us protection from our suffering, but he promises to hold us fast through our suffering. Um, But even more than that, God promises to shield us from his wrath. If you belong to Jesus, Romans 8 says there is no condemnation for you. Um, And so you might face suffering. You might face consequences for your sins. If you do stupid stuff, like you're going to pay for it. Like, in this life, it's not going to go well for you. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about. Like, your, your choices do have consequences. So you might, you might face consequences. But in eternity, you will never, ever face the wrath of God if you belong to Jesus. If you've washed your robes in the blood of the Lamb, if you've trusted in Him for your righteousness, um, you will not have to face the wrath of God. So what does this do? Think about the ancient readers of Revelation. This would call them to faithfulness. They would say no matter what happens, if famine comes, if suffering comes, if the Roman army comes and um, harms us, if we go to death for our love for Jesus, we might suffer in this life, but we'll never face the wrath of God. It's them saying we are on the right side of history. No matter what it looks like, no matter what the appearances are, um, we know that God is going to judge sin. He's going to judge evil. He's going to make all things new and one day we'll have eternal fellowship with the Lord. And so this just takes us through our pain and points our hearts and our eyes to the beauty of the gospel and the greatness of God and um, His worth and worthiness of worship.